Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Joining me is TLS commissioning editor and constant vacationer, Thea Lenarduzzi. Thea, we had the TLS summer party this week. Do you have any tales of debauchery from the party? I do not. Oh. Do you? Well, I was going to talk about the unnamed TLS staffer who awoke... (laughs) The day after the TLS party in an unfamiliar house in Peckham with no knowledge of how he or she got there. It was a he. It was. I was going to say, it makes it sound like it was me. No, it wasn't I do you. live in Peckham. Yeah, it wasn't but I know it, exactly it where me. I was. And it was was a, it your house? It was not my house. <laughs> but this, this guy who worked there, he, 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 he got drunk and then ended up in a house in Peckham. And there was a kind of a scuffle at the party as well. A, a sort of Unconnected. Lit- unconnected, a sort of literary scuffle. So it was a little on the bohemians. It was just people getting drunk, wasn't it? Is that bohemian? So is that bohemian? Is, um, some rustling of plastic bags. Do you have asbos for some yeah. of your yeah. colleagues? Yeah, there should be. I, I was warned, though, that these parties can get a little out of hand. And you were not disappointed? I was not I was not disappointed. But nothing to declare from you. Nothing to declare from I will say, me. the reason I wasn't there was we had our reprieve summer party and um, no one beat anyone else up. Oh, no. As far as I know, everyone ended up at the right house. And, you know, we're obviously human rights people human are just right. that much more civilised. Goody two-shoes. I know. That's, the problem. <laughs> that's, that's the problem with you, you, you decent, thoughtful people who make a difference to the world positively. Well, they, you have they, terrible parties. They do bang on us about us being do-gooders. To which my response is, you know, what are you, a do-badder? I mean, I'm quite flattered. I don't care. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Right, you're hearing the dulcet tones there of uh, the fantastic Clive Stafford-Smith, who is joining us this afternoon. He's the founder of the legal action charity Reprieve. He spends his time arguing for the civil rights of prisoners, including in Guantanamo Bay, and against the death penalty, where he has been responsible for saving the lives of an inordinate number of death row inmates. This week, he's written an essay for the TLS on modern-day extrajudicial executions, the kill lists approved by governments across the world. He joins us here in the studio. We'll also be joined later by playwright, student and TLS intern Lamorna Ash, who has written about her experiences on a Cornish fishing trawler in these Brexit times. (laughs) 
Clive Stafford-Smith begins his lead essay in the TLS this week thus. Few people are aware that every week the White House indulges in Terror Tuesday, where the US president personally approves people for death without any legal process at all. This is not new and it's not an excrescence of the Trump administration. As Clive notes, it was adopted in 2010 by Barack Obama, the constitutional lawyer turned president. The history of state-sponsored assassination, though, is not an especially lengthy one. Indeed, our modern barbarism may even outstrip the violent inclinations of our forebears. The Romans were not especially fond of the extrajudicial killing of opposing generals, for example, not least because, as Clive says, they possessed the most powerful army in the world and stood to benefit from a structure that delegitimized subterfuge. More recently, Thomas Jefferson noted that assassination, poison, perjury, all of these were legitimate principles in the Dark Ages, which intervened between ancient and modern civilizations, but exploded and are held in just horror in the 18th century. It was held in horror for most of the 20th century too. Adolf Hitler, in many ways the poster child for legitimate extrajudicial killing, was never the target for a UK-executed hit, despite the evident benefit, perhaps, of removing him from this mortal coil. The war on terror, as in so many other cases, has changed the rules of the game, the argument being that drone strikes on our individual enemies are part of a necessary and fine-tuned project that decapitates the worst terrorists against us. Except it isn't fine-tuned and it very often doesn't decapitate. For each person the US has targeted, reports Clive, an average of nine children have been killed. To date, the CIA has killed 76 children and 29 adults in pursuit of bin Laden's successor Ayman Zwahiri, yet he remains alive. And the moral certainty around kill lists is actually spreading and growing. Clive has diagnosed a modern epidemic of them. NATO operates a kill list. President Assad of Syria has one. Russia has one. And we've seen bloodshed on British streets as a result. Even Europe's favourite cuddly centrist, Emmanuel Macron, has been bequeathed the kill list by his predecessor. So how have we got here? Why have we got here? And where do we go from here are all reasonable questions. And we have the very reasonable Clive Stafford-Smith to answer them. Clive, thank you so much for coming in. I've never been accused of being reasonable. Well, I'm, take offense to I'm going to accuse you now for accusing of being a do-good and reasonable. And we're only in about five <laughs> minutes into this. Uh, why don't we start with Terror Tuesdays, actually? Uh, how did they come about and who gets on and off the list and how does it work? Well, I think the first thing that I find intriguing about that, and I'm not sure what I should be more shocked about, whether it's the fact they do it or the fact that they thought it was good PR to say they do it. Yeah. And it's intriguing how people do this. You think of uh, Theresa May's dementia tax. You know, who thought that was a good idea to say it publicly? So I found particularly shocking in uh, 2010 that the Obama administration leaked to the media that they were having these Terror Tuesdays. And they did that in an effort to seem tough on terrorism because Obama had said, look, and we're not going to have Guantanamo anymore. We weren't very good at getting rid of that. It's still there, isn't it? It's still there. Um, but he also said, we're not going to torture people anymore. So then people said, well, what are you going to do about these bad guys? And so someone put this idea of just assassinating them in his mind. And then they boast about it. And the way they boast about it is about, you know, talking about this PowerPoint presentation where the CIA director comes in and says, you know, here's a picture of a guy with a beard. Who, um, who we should kill. And just like, you know, Roman Emperor, he puts his thumb up and thumb down. And So what are we more horrified by? The fact that that's happening 
or the fact they think it's cool to say it's happening. Uh, you know, that's that's something that I find deeply. Disturbing. And what's the burden of proof there? What, what do you need to say for what? Is, what level does the CIA have to get to before saying this is definitely a bad guy uh, who is so bad that he he requires offing before he gets to do anything worse? Well, of course, that's a big issue. And, you know, when you think about sentencing someone to death through a legal trial, you know, I quite often do a little experiment with judges about what they think reasonable doubt means. You know, how sure do you have to be? And my my batting average with judges, both in Britain and America, at the moment is an average of 83% sure before they're sure beyond a reasonable doubt. And when when you reduce that to, to pure facts, that means they're aiming to get it wrong one time in six. And as Robin Hood would tell you, if you aim low, you miss. And also, to put it in perspective, with six million people in America in the judicial system, that means you're aiming to have a million innocent people um, banged up in prison. And that's just horrifying to me. So that's the judicial process. Now, when you're dealing with the death penalty without a fair trial, or without a semblance of a fair trial, you know, you've got much bigger problems. And in a way, I suppose the statistical study of that is Guantanamo Bay, where we took 779 people, we stuck them in Guantanamo, we had years of interrogating them and trying to prove they were bad dudes. And so far, we've exonerated 738 of them, um, saying that actually, you know, they really weren't bad dudes. So, you know, this is just horrifying that if you toss a coin, you are so much more likely to get the right answer. Now, it is clear they'll probably get some of the guys we really hate, but my experience so far is they're just shockingly bad at it. And isn't isn't part of the problem that the the definition of, of terrorism and being a terrorist has become so much looser now? Well, it is interesting to me. Um, you know, I was approached by someone who was um, at one point in MI6 at one time um, in a pub for a conversation and that's great I was really pleased by that because and I said look can I please come to MI6 I'd love to talk to you guys you know and even if you don't want to talk to me I'd like to talk to you because one of the problems and this is true I think of prosecutors as it's true of many intelligence folk is they never actually get to meet the people I get to meet and it's true that I don't get to meet some of the people they get to meet and indeed I don't get to meet them half the time which is a great tragedy I think But what that means is you end up judging people without ever having met them. And it's always been interesting to me that in a court of law, a jury is required to judge you without ever talking to you. And I don't know about you guys, about how good you feel you are at judging people and whether after having a conversation with them, you're bad, Stig, because you've said I'm a reasonable, yeah, yeah. do-gooder, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, so you clearly are hopeless. But That's true for other I- reasons too. <laughs> but the idea that we are willing to judge people without ever meeting them and now that we're willing to judge them at a distance without ever meeting them, yeah, again, sure, we're going to get some of them, right? I mean, some of Bin Laden goes on TV and said he, you know, says he wants to kill lots of people. That's not so hard. But then we get a huge number of them just dramatically wrong. Is your concern both about that the process of extrajudicial killing is being effectively wrong? Yeah, I, don't, I don't like the, the, the phrase extrajudicial killing. Because we come up with these phrases that that make you it neutralise it. Okay, what do we call it? It's assassination. Assassin- okay, it's assassination. assassination. If there was no collateral damage, if you just got Bin Laden, and you didn't get anyone else in the process, and Bin Laden is beyond reasonable doubt the person responsible for committing terrorist atrocities on a fairly large scale, if you just got him, would any moral objection fall away? 
it's not it's not a necessarily just a moral objection, but this is the problem. Advocates of the death penalty say, well, you know, if you've got someone who absolutely 100% certain did it, there's a video of it, you know, they're doing all of this, they've confessed 75 ways to Sunday, they've got DNA evidence, you've got everything. You know, if you have that, would you have an objection? Well, you know, if we have a structure of the world where there's no human fallibility and everything's 100% certain, then we're not in this world. And so you just can't have that as a hypothesis. But, but there's another way of looking at it too, which is ultimately, does that work? Does that make the world a safer place? And, you know, by and large, when we decide to assassinate people, just as, you know, you have the same debate over torture, you know, if I'm sure that you've got a ticking time bomb in the middle of London and we want to stop that, would I torture you? The problem when you start getting into torture is you've just thrown away all your values. And so you're then tarred as a hypocrite and you immediately make other people think you're a hypocrite and you immediately undermine the very principles you stand for. So I think these things don't work practically and they certainly don't exist in the uniquely non-existent world that you're talking about where we're 100% sure of everything. And quite quite apart from the fact that as you know, far back as the early 1600s, people were already saying that well, you take out the head guy and all you do is create a dangerous power vacuum. I can't help but feel like there's something specifically kind of highly individuated celebrity culture about this idea that if you take out one guy, Osama bin Laden, everything else will be fine. I think the lessons of history are that that's nonsense, of course. And, you know, you look at the the one assassination that Britain was theoretically involved in in World War Two, which was, um, you know, of, of Heydrich, who was a lunatic Nazi who loved the final solution and all the rest of it. Now, yeah, he wasn't a nice guy. There were lots of people in the Nazi party who were not nice guys. But when he was assassinated, what the Germans did in response was they wiped out a whole village of Lidice. They killed everyone in the village. They flattened the whole place. They deported to extermination camps 13,000 people. They replaced um, him, you know, the dead guy with someone just as bad. And so... Did that do anything good? I think the answer is no. But if you take that, I suppose an, an argument would be you could make the argument, therefore, you shouldn't even bomb IS as a military target. We're talking about something different with assassination. We're talking about targeted, saying you are worthy of death as a named individual without due process. Would you extend that argument to a more indiscriminate bombing campaign as well? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there are these rules, and we develop fairly irrational rules in warfare. Um, So, for example, you can't use dum-dum bullets, you know, the hollow-point bullets, because they explode in you and kill you really effectively. And, you know, you can't use poison gas. Why can't you use poison gas? Because we had a bad experience of it in World War One. It was already banned by that. What's fascinating is the the, the Geneva Mm. Convention before that said don't use poison gas, and literally two years later, everybody used it. Well, you know, what we're doing with these things, which is a bit irrational in the context of the United States and the Soviet Union threatening to destroy the entire world with uh, nuclear weapons, um, is we're trying to civilize a very uncivilized process of war. Now, I have problems with war. You know, you can add to your slurs against my character, Stig, the yeah, fact that I come awfully good, close to... Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I had a chat with the head teacher of my little boy's primary school who was a commander in the British Navy. 
for his whole career before he took on. It's an interesting career. Eight year. Yeah, yeah, it was. He was a great teacher because it allowed his sort of being a commander to come in, but also the slight madness of a <laughs> primary school teacher. But I was talking to him in the pub about wars. What wars would you have fought in? And since World War Two, what do you think it was worth fighting in? And I always appreciate hearing people who are sent to fight those wars rather than armchair warriors. And it was very interesting that he thought that they were all pointless and none of them needed to happen and we could have resolved everything without um, bloodshed. And I think he's right. Um, So I I wish that politicians who send people to war had to go themselves because I think we'd have a whole different attitude to it. Um, NATO operates a list. Explain how that works and what names that they, they use. I, I don't know how many people listening to this, because when I read your piece and we first talked about it, I didn't really know the extent to which this was just normalised and there is this, this extrajudicial, which is a word you don't like to use, but there was this kill list, there's this assassination list, and it's operated by seemingly everyone in, in the Western world. Well, um, I'm just looking in the article because I want to make sure I get the names yes. right because they're just so unbelievably they are offensive. Unbel- yeah. But NATO has a list on the AFPAC border and it's called JPEL and that's the Joint Prioritized Effects List. And it's a list, I have a copy of one of its iterations which has 669 people on it. And there are lots of things that are really disturbing about that. Number one, you, know, you just think that this is meant to be some clinical, technical thing where everyone's got this um, tremendous goal to make the world a better place. So each of the targets has a code name, and I just love some of the targets. Uh, JPEL Objective 58, a letter, is a homage to the Hungarian porn star Letter Ocean. And then they have Camilla, spelled with a K, who's a homage to Camilla Camilla, who's a Russian porn star, one of the targets they call Altavira, which is a contraceptive pill. And you just think, these guys are sitting around coming up with targets of people they want to assassinate, and they're doing that. And I've got to say, I lose a lot of faith in the sort of objective thing. But what really bothered me about JPEL is the Brits are involved deeply in it. And there's a leaked document where the Americans say in it, the Brits were howling to include drug dealers on it. And um, that's very disturbing. And they did in the end, you know, when the DEA worked out that they needed to get in on the act, that's the Drug Enforcement Agency, they did include at least 43 drug uh, traffickers on the JPL list on the theory that's on another of their little PowerPoints that says that there is a UN document that says that drugs are the, the financial foundation of the Taliban. Well, they cite this UN document, and I look it up, obviously, and it turns out it's an American document which says exactly the opposite, that in fact uh, drugs have very little to do with it and they have much more to do with corruption in the Afghan government. And on the basis of all this, the Brits get involved in assassinating drug dealers. Something which you could argue, you've said this in a previous piece for us, there's a broad spectrum of offensive things like drug dealing, or drugs generally, sodomy, blasphemy, which run from not being a crime at all to being punishable by death. You can make Mm. a very strong case that taking drugs certainly shouldn't be a criminal offence and therefore you can move back towards drug dealing. And yet we now live in a world where our government is demanding without trial that people involved in the industry of drugs should be executed. But what is ultimately hypocritical about that is our government is vehemently publicly opposed to the death penalty for a drug dealer with a trial, um, and yet we're involved in assassinating him without a trial. And, you know, that's just silly. But, I mean, this all sort of touches on on one of the 
even more worrying aspects of all of this, which is the copycat effect and the kind of the wholesale lifting of wording from uh, US laws or UK laws or whatever, and their transplantation into Russian law and Ethiopian law. Can you give us a sense of how that has worked? Because in in the war on drugs, for example, in, in inverted commas, in the Philippines, that's a huge development. Well, and one is, that we're mm, sort of to blame for. Well, uh, you know, who knows? I think we certainly help promote it. And so in the Philippines, President Duterte comes to power and someone, you know, he has this whole thing about killing not just drug dealers, but drug addicts. And, you know, he says that vigilante groups should go out and do it. And he says that he personally has been involved in it. And this is a president saying that he's been involved in murder. I mean, you you think about what they tried to impeach um, President Clinton for, which was, I think, lying about the word is. And here, this guy has a very high approval rating for that. And someone said he was like Adolf Hitler doing this. And his response was, well, Hitler killed three million Jews. Why can't I kill three million drug addicts? You know, first you think, what happened to the other three million Jews who Hitler killed? But once you get past his factual inaccuracy, the idea that he's advocating that and that they have assassinated, uh, I think it's now 8,000 people right. in the Philippines in the last year since he became president. And Trump has yeah. gone on the record to praise him. And indeed, we, Britain, Philip Hammond was uh, seen in the Philippines. I think it was Philip Hammond, it might have been Liam Fox, was there saying we have shared values with the Philippines. This is a man who compares himself to Adolf Hitler and is proudly talking about killing people. You know, I'm not sure what's worse, though. Trump saying, you're a fine man, come to the White House, we'll have a dinner where presumably we'll have a PowerPoint discussion of who to murder. Or Obama saying this extrajudicial killing, the word he used, not me, um, you know, this is really offensive. When Duterte turns around and says, wait a minute, you're the guys who were doing it. You know, I think it's Obama who actually undermined our state in the world and our ability to be critical. And well, it's, it's all pretty clear from, from what we've said that this is sort of spiralling and, and mm. you, you, just, you, you talk about it in terms of um, an epidemic of, of these kill lists. So what, how do we rein it in? What do we do? <laughs> well, it, it's like every mad thing that, um, that the US government followed by the British government followed by a bunch of other people do. Um, first, you don't pay attention to people like Theresa May, who says that human rights just need to be jettisoned. Uh, human rights are actually rather important. And, um, and I, it should make this illegal, though. Certainly by the, the, the European Convention on Human Rights, Right to Life, Article 2. Yeah, well, of course it's illegal. The question is who you can get to say it's illegal. So we have several things. First, we've got to tell people about it. And that's where if you at the TLS don't do your job and tell everyone, then, you know, I'll put you on mic a little bit. It's the lead piece. Yeah. Yeah. Thank I'm you. Not, thank that's you. quite something. I'm not sure we're looking at the cover now. I'm not sure we, I mean. It's not very it, subtle. It's in our, own, in our own small way, Clive. I'm not sure we can give it any more of a All right, of, of I'm a taking you off my kill list. <laughs> thank God that's it. So we've got to let people know this is happening because I think, you know, the lead line is that people don't know this is happening. And so the first thing is always to tell them. And it's, it was in Guantanamo. That was the same thing. You know, people didn't know what was going on with rendition people didn't know what was going on with with drone killing and so forth so we have to get the message out but then we got to go after the people doing it and i am proud to say that i initiated the first lawsuit against president trump apart from all the ones by women who had been (laughs) molested by him after he became president as we were sitting there watching uh, his inauguration and the moment it had finished press the the go button to send the uh, initial letter so we sued him on behalf of two journalists who we know are on the kill list. 
because that's, you know, some of us think journalists should be eliminated at every possible uh, point, but actually I think they probably shouldn't, no matter what they say. And, More do-gooding uh, <laughs> for me there. It's becoming a theme. But there are two journalists, one of whom is uh, Ahmed Zaidan, with, who is the Islamabad station chief for Al Jazeera. And he managed to get himself on top of the list in that part of Asia of the, British, of the American kill list due to his social media, that they sucked the data out of his phone and discovered he kept interviewing people like um, you know, Bin Laden and others. And so that's what got him his position. Now, I asked you guys as journalists, if you had the chance to interview Bin Laden when he was alive, would you have taken it if you were sure that... Yeah, of course. Of course you would. Of course you and so that's how he ends up. And then there's an American journalist um, who's in Syria, who's a former... Um, comedian, stand-up comedian from New York who's going around interviewing Al-Nusra and trying to put all different sides, except he hates ISIS, of the Syrian debacle uh, because he wants to do war journalism. And he's been targeted three, three times himself, Bilal has. So we sued on their behalf with a sort of simple request of the U.S. government, which is, will you just tell us that you're not trying to murder me? And they responded just a couple of weeks ago saying... Uh, no, we won't, and we have every right to murder you if we want to, and no judge no judge is in a position to judge whether we should do that because we're the best ones to decide whether someone should be assassinated. And, I mean, you know, that's mad. So we'll litigate that. We may or may not win. Where do you litigate it? In Washington, D.C., um, and we'll see. And I bet, you know, we'll have a tough time in the lower courts because district court judges don't like to create big rules. But I bet, just like with Guantanamo, that in the end, a court will say, oh, you know, we just shouldn't be doing that. But you can't take Americans to the, the, the International Court of Human Rights in the Hague, can you? Because they're not signatories. No, but actually, you know, one thing the, U- the U.S. has, which Britain doesn't have, is a constitution. And that applies. It doesn't apply to you people, because you are what we call foreigners. But on the other hand, it applies to me as an American, and fortunately to Bilal as American. And, you know, I... Don't get me wrong. I think that's reprehensible. I think that even you guys should have legal rights. But Thank the um, that, that was very generous <laughs> of me. But but you know, at some point they're going to have to answer to the fact that the U.S. government is trying to assassinate an American citizen, and I think that's a tough one. Just finally, we'll have to leave it. But uh, I just want to tell briefly the story of uh, you've also had access to Assad's mm. kill list, which was given to you by. Brexit superhero David Davis uh, before he became a Brexit superhero potentially. You know, I'm fond of David. I wish he'd give up his uh, his role as Brexit minister and just spend his time doing the really good things he does on uh, on human rights. Um, and he went to Damascus and met with Assad and it was all part of a mission from some MPs to try and sort out some sort of peace process. And I think Assad, you know, I wasn't there, but my uh, sense from talking to David and so forth is that Assad knew that we have a bunch of lists of Muslims we want to kill and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So he thought that by handing over a disc to a conservative MP with his list of bad guys with beards who he wants to kill somehow that would make him our friend and you know to David's credit he's aghast at that and gave me a copy of it and you've seen it I, well, I've got it and we've translated it and some of the people on it I mean you just you gotta love it there's a guy called Eric Haroon who was a former American soldier and uh, he was on the list and Assad said he was a really bad dude with al-Nusra extremist Muslim and said that they'd killed him and so uh, Eric 
tweets from Istanbul saying basically rumors of my death are greatly exaggerated. I'm chilling in Istanbul with a martini. And, you know, that proves two things. One is he wasn't dead at that point, but two is he ain't no extremist Muslim if he's boozing away in Istanbul. And so it's just one of many examples of the madness of this whole thing. And so is your, sorry, is your duty then now to, to inform everyone who's on their list? Has that list been published somewhere for, for people to see? And, and What we're going to do is we're going to uh, reprieve. We're going to have a project where we publish all the lists. And some we have actual copies of, some we have to reconstruct by the obvious fact that the Russians keep assassinating people. Um, but we're going to publish them and, yeah, just carry on doing that until we get the message out. And just finally, what can people do listening to this or reading the paper uh, this week? Well, what can people do to, to support this? Is it donate to Reprieve? Is it to write to their MP? Is it, what steps can be taken? Well, we are a charity at Reprieve and it's expensive business, so we're always grateful for that. But also, yeah, I think people who are MPs in Britain need to see that this is yet another of these mad policies the US came up with that we just shouldn't have anything to do with. And then, you know, authors need to write stuff about it. TV people need to make documentaries about it. Artists need to do artwork about it just to have that discourse so that we can get back to 1759 when assassination was illegal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take us back to the 18th Love century. Love 1759. Yeah. Clive <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM. The penultimate stage of really bad seasickness is being terrified you'll die. The ultimate stage is being petrified you won't. This is just one of the many maritime insights that stuck barnacle-like in Lamorna Ash's mind when she embarked a month or so ago on a week's voyage from Newland Harbour on the Cornish deep-sea trawler, the Crystal Sea. The trip, with its distinct rhythms, language and mythology, formed part of her extensive research into Cornwall's beleaguered fishing industry, and it informs her, her neat and moving essay in this week's paper. Lamorna joins us in the studio to discuss this all further. First... 
I guess for the benefit of our international listeners, maybe you can tell us tell us why your research took you to Newlyn and I mean, what does the place represent and what specifically were you looking for there? So my family is from Cornwall for a lot of generations, but we're always in the kind of beautiful seaside town parts of it, so places like St Ives, which are kind of picture-postcard perfect places. But Newland has this allure for me because it is a thriving commercial port, and for that reason there's not a really sort of touristy bit to it, there's not a lovely beach, there's not that many places that you can go and sit, and it feels like it truly still has a Cornish heart to it and a sort of throbbing pulse. And for that reason, it's actually not that accessible for tourists. So I was really excited when I had a family friend who lived there that I could go and stay with because I thought this is something incredibly real that I wanted to experience. And so you went out on the trawler. What was day-to-day life that you were there for a week? Yeah, so I was on the trawler for a week and I was living in Newlyn interviewing. I have about 20 hours worth of interviews with different fishermen before that. Because when you sit down, each interview takes at least three hours because you start from the age of 12 and they continue until the present day moment, uh, which was wonderful, but it meant that you're kind of constantly listening to these different stories. But I was on the trawler itself. It was meant to be a week, but we had to go back after four, no, five days because there were four to eight storms um, and you could sort of suddenly feel it. It was this beautiful calm. They call it like milk when the sea is completely calm. And by the end, it was smoking, which is when the wind knocks the tops of the waves off and the entire ship is going like this. And like, this is too much. We have to go back oh, in. And what do they make of, of you, Lamorna? These are, these are <laughs> completely these are, bemused. Yeah. <laughs> these are presumably grizzled, bearded uh, fishermen, you know, with chapped hands and, you know, smoking pipes. And then you, you come along on the ship for a whole week. Yeah. How, this, how did you fit in? What did you... I mean, they thought I was completely insane and were kind of, I think, amused by me because the thing about it is a lot of the time it is boring. There's a lot of waiting when the hall, when the, the nets are out, you are just waiting for something. So I think having this person who's a bit gangly and falling over the entire time and vomiting a lot to begin with, which I did constantly, um, I think is quite a source of amusement. But I did try and get involved and muck in. So um, the thing that I really enjoyed doing was actually gutting. So after the fish come in and you get tons and tons of fish you have to sit there and you're all kind of in a chain and it's the one time you're all together and you're just gutting out the insides of these fish these sort of like purple kind of gross like huge monkfish with their giant tails um so i think i tried to muck in as much as i could and would try and carry boxes and i'd sort of be there for about five minutes trying to lift something before they were like okay there we go the, the, the tons and tons of fish though that that touches on a point which is very interesting yeah. in that the quota system, fishing is probably second only to farming in this country for, in terms of political sens- uh, sensitivity. Mm. Think of Nigel Farage and Bob Geldof on the Thames uh, shouting about taking back our seas. I wonder what the... That what was one the, of the most embarrassing... I think that's one of the most embarrassing... Taking back our waters. Yeah, one so, of the most yeah. embarrassing things that happened in Britain in the last year. I think that's up against some pretty yeah. stiff competition. But Bob Geldof and Nigel Farage shouting at each other over yeah. with megaphones in the Thames. It's just, it's just so embarrassing. Yeah. Right? But, but but the the, the, the thing behind yeah, it, the underlying agree, issue is 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 felt deeply. Yeah, so I was wondering, what 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 were people talking about on on, on Crystal well, Sea? What was the sentiment? So in in the village, it honestly is about ninety seven percent of the fishermen voted leave, and the few who didn't are incredibly quiet and hush hush about it. And their reasoning is incredibly sensible, which is that they a lot of our fish goes to Europe, and so if we suddenly shut them out of our waters, then we're going to lose a lot of our ability to sell to other countries so I mean it was really sensible but the reason yeah so why why is the 97 percent so so it actually comes actually pre-EU so in 1964 there's something called the London Agreement which basically meant that before that 
something I think it was twelve nautical miles of waters were owned by British were well, British waters. I hate the phrase our waters and but anyway, that's that's what it is. Um and then after that it was only six miles. France have sixty percent quotas in our waters, whereas we only have twenty percent. So you actually see day to day how many more tons of fish French boats can get within our waters. So for that reason it's incredibly emotive for them because they do still regard themselves as as hunter-gatherers in this really kind of primal sense. And the fact that they're having to throw away far more fish than f- French boats, it, it angers them hugely. So why are, they having to throw f- why are they having to throw away fish? So in the 1980s, the quota system was set. So what happened was, and I think fishermen are so aware of this, but they overfished to terrifying levels in the 80s. And so many fishing populations are only just starting to come back. But the quota system was set in the 1980s and hasn't been changed. By the EU? By the EU and by the, uh, what's it called, the common fisheries policies. And it hasn't been changed since then. Whereas actually fish populations have changed. So what happens now? So things like haddock. So I think the quota is, I think per week you're allowed something like 20 tonnes. And they at times can catch up to 400 tonnes. And you just have to throw it all back in. So you're just seeing these dead fish that you pull up and then having to throw them away, and they're throwing away over half the fish that they're taking in. Because the quota system doesn't take a, a, account of migration patterns. Not at all. But isn't yeah. isn't there also quite a disconnect in that, I mean, Britain, it, it's an island, but we're not here massive fish eaters. British people tend to eat haddock and cod. All of our langoustines are sent to the mainland because yeah. langoustines don't go down very well here. So I wonder what taking back our waters looks looks like in terms of of feeding people and, and, and making the most of stocks and, and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, I think, well, there's a lot of frustration with the fishermen about that because well, quite a lot of them pair up with people um, like Rick Science for that, who mm. are trying to say that there are so many fish out here, we should be trying to diversify the amount of fish that we're eating, the type of fish we're eating. But there's also this strange point where actually fishing are so expensive that most fishermen wouldn't be able to afford the fish that they're actually catching mm. unless they're taking it back themselves. So I do think it is, the pride it is, it's more, primitive is the wrong word, but there is a sense that it, it's more about the fact that this is our job, this is our livelihood. So rather than it being that we need these fish because British need them and we're actually, yeah, for instance, cuttlefish are all sent to Japan. No one mm. really eats cuttlefish in the UK. Um, but I think it is more that the fact that just seeing these other boats in there taking what they believe but is But they still need the... I mean, the other, but the striking thing is that the EU restricts the amount of fish they can catch and it allows other fi- uh, boats into their waters. That's the downside of the EU as articulated by the fishermen. Mm-hmm. The upside of the EU, as I understand it, is that they pay vast amounts of subsidies to British fishermen for the fish that they catch. So one of the first things that happened on the day after Brexit in Cornwall was they said to the government, will you guarantee the same subsidies as the EU? Are they aware of that massive contradiction that although the EU controls them in some respects it also effectively rewards them and supports them I think yes but I think the problem that they have so quite I mean they're the particularly the Crystal Sea that I was at they're incredibly political and they go to a lot of talks they meet people like Angela Leeson they all know George Eustace they're kind of excited actually about Gove and the fact that these he are Tory fishing. MPs in case you yeah sorry yeah um but what what they were saying is that actually the MEPs tend to know nothing about fishing that the phrase that I heard all the time was they don't know their head from a tail of a fish so I think their frustration is that the people who seem to be in charge of what the, the amount they're allowed to fish actually know almost nothing so it's the sense of like wanting people who actually are 
British and who are going to come and actually visit them and talk to them and getting because I think a lot of fishermen feel that they are treated as if they're entirely stupid and they know nothing yeah. whereas actually they when they talk about fishing populations it's extraordinary they know they know when waters change they know the life cycle of every fish they know that lobsters live to 100 years and this kind of thing and and this seems to be the indisputable argument in favor of brexit however else you argue against it this notion of sovereignty is very important to people which is you might have a bunch of idiot politicians in britain but if you don't like them you can vote them out and you can vote in other politicians who may have a better policy for you and the problem that a lot of people have i think a lot of brexiteers even if you put aside immigration you put aside a lot of other things the ineluctable fact that they want the people they vote for to be capable of making decisions which they can challenge and I suspect in the fishing policy, that's the same thing, that maybe, maybe not the British government will be good at, at dealing with this issue, but at least it will be the British government that they can challenge. Yeah, I think that is completely what it is. But there's also the sense that they, they're one of, it, it's such a physical job that they, they can feel everything. And there's some things that, there's sometimes a disconnect between what they know and what they want. So they want sustainability and they're really conscious of this and you i met this incredible man called mad dick because everyone in cornwall has a really good nickname like mad dick What's mad yours? dick um, i didn't get one you didn't get a nickname what, oh no i did have i was the weird blonde head girl for yeah, a while who's the weird blonde head yeah. girl that is a crap that is a crap nickname the people yeah, of cornwall I should be, i expect something so beautiful and cornish <laughs> the blonde haired girl from london yeah um but there was also there's there's wordsy who because he talks a lot and the person i live wordsy. with called lofty because he's tall and they're all very simplistic but brilliant nicknames but mad dick is this guy who, he, he talks about sustainability and he only uses withy pots which are really old-fashioned lobster pots that let out a certain number of lobsters and are very easy for the lobsters to get out of and he's saying that greed is what has completely ruined the cornish fishing industry and that pre this incredible technology which is it, it's strange because it's a double bind because it's both it's made fishing so much easier but it also means that it's it's too easy they can catch such huge numbers and they know where the fish are in a way that before it was about intellect and there was a real sense of it, this learned knowledge from your fathers and your grandfathers and it and because it's too easy now that's been a problem the other thing that i found fascinating is you can feel global warming and fishing in a way that I'm not sure many other professions can because suddenly all these fish that usually are warm water fish are in our waters and so they can actually see the fishing populations changing. So do, do they believe in climate change? Completely. And they're really conscious of it and like, what can we do about it? It means that so certain fish that usually the colder fish now are sort of staying in Scotland and staying in the north that would usually come down here because it's now too warm for them. So that was like another fascinating thing. And I was like, you know, what do you want to do about that? And they were like, well, it's a good thing in some ways because we're getting these fish we never used to have. And you're kind of like, but you're, you know, you can see that these fish are changing. What, and whether I, or not the British people will eat them if they're not cod or haddock is, is a whole other yeah. um, debate. I, I suppose one, one last question before we leave it, because at, at the heart of, at the base of all of this is, is that this is a tradition which is not evolving to keep up keep pace with our market economy and the fact that people will go to wholesalers and supermarkets uh, rather than their local fishermen so is did you get a sense that things are there initiatives in newlyn things being done to, yeah. to mitigate that there really are the, the hub master is brilliant he's only been in for a couple of years and he's really conscious of this and he's starting up things they're not calling them apprenticeships but it's kind of equivalent to that where mentor schemes where they're getting young people in because what a lot of them say is that um with the so in france you have proper training colleges for young fishermen whereas in the uk at school they're kind of like well if you if you fail your exams you could always become a fisherman 
and it shouldn't be that it, it's something to be incredibly proud of it's an incredibly hard job and dangerous and difficult and they're so intelligent the guys I was working with they understand the sea so well so it's a problem in this country generally that basically vocate I mean and this has been true for 60 70 years you know when they set up the system of education they said technical colleges technical education will be as important as academic education it's called parity of esteem they call it in government there'll always be parity of esteem and there has never been ever in British education parity of esteem between academic grammar schooly type uh, accomplishments and accomplishments in the area of trades or industries so fishing would be a classic example of that you should live in a particularly if you live in Cornwall you should be able to go to a school where at 15 you elect to become a fisherman yeah because they used to be able to I had, one of the fishermen I spoke to he always he described it in an amazing way when he was 14 so this was maybe 30 years ago he'd hear in school he could hear the clogs um, for some reason his father wore clogs but the echoing of his clogs as his father would turn up when he was 14 and say right you're coming out in the waters with me this weekend and through that you learn from this early age and you understand the waters whereas now if you're going into it at 18 in this incredibly strange job where you're away for a week at a time you know you've got one week on and one week off and it's almost too late, as it were, so you need to sort of slowly be learning the same way you'd learn a language from an early age. But is that world gone, Lamorne? I mean, is it not easy for you, particularly as an outsider, the blonde-haired woman from London, uh, to idealise this and say, of course it should be how it was in, in 1920, but we don't live in 1920. We live yeah. in a horribly messy, overfished, over-commercialised, now madly Brexiteering world, and there's going to be casualties of this, and, and I suspect... Your but friends they, on a fishing boat may be a casualty of it. Yeah, well, I almost have to idealise it in some ways because this village is entirely dependent on the fishing industry. And they, the phrase is sort of, one man at sea is four men on land. Every single person I met, and I, I was there for a month and made incredible attachments. That They are the most kind, generous people I think I've ever stayed with. And the fact that if this com- if fishing industry falls apart, then this community dies and it becomes another sort of stagnant, strange, uh, frozen village that is just for tourists. Yeah, hollowed out is the phrase they use for, for these things. When, yeah. When the purpose of a village no longer exists. Exactly, it's, it's heart is ripped out and yeah. that is a huge tragedy because it has, for hundreds of years, been an incredible working fishing port. So, although it's idealising it, saying that it ought to be as it was, there's got to be some way of maintaining it. And then I I think what other ways they're doing it is by trying to bring in... Because it, it, it's so much more expensive as well. For a young person, it's now sort of £2,000 to get your first tiny little punt, which used to be far cheaper. So they are trying to just bring people where they get young people and they put them with an older person to look after them and show them the ways through fishing. So you um, do have some hope? I think there is. And there's a village called Medvegissi, which is near Newland. And for some reason, just so many more young people are going into it there. And so quite a lot, there's a, a there's seafood training school, which is a Cornish fishing training college. They are going to Medvegissi and trying to understand what it is, like why it is that for some reason fishing is still popular and almost like cool there, that like young kids are wanting to and go into it. You say young people, young kids. Is, is the gender thing changing at all now because not, I mean not really who's ever heard of a fisherwoman there's I think there's been one in Newland in about the last mm. 20 years and I think it, it comes why down is to that why is that because you're gone for a week it, it really is and also it is incredibly physical I mean I tried so much to do heavy lifting and just wasn't able to do it yeah but I think also what I found most interesting and what I guess my thesis is going to be about is how um, fishing creates a particular kind of time and a particular kind of identity where these relationships you're so used to your husband goes away for a week and then comes back so either you're a stay-at-home dad and you have this intensely close relationship with your family or your relationship entirely melts away and you're just out on the water and I think in some ways for a mother that particularly if you're a young mother that is still incredibly difficult to do 
That's all. It's, it's fascinating stuff there, Laura. Uh, I'm so glad you've written this piece and and joined us to, no, today. I love writing it, thanks. There, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Clive Stafford Smith and the blonde lady from London. <laughs> uh, do go to the tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the TLS, which also has B. Wilson writing about sustainable food and insects. Thea? Yes. Have you ever eaten crickets? <laughs> I have. Were they nice? I can't say I enjoyed them. They weren't as, as crunchy as I thought they would be. You presumably did as well, Lamona. You, you were in Mexico. Yeah, recently. I ate grasshoppers That's in I Mexico. Well. Yeah, they were they, delicious. They were quite nutty, but they tended to taste more of we're back on, we're the back on, We're, we're back on solid ground now, aren't we? They basically taste like what you put food. on them. Yeah, exactly. I had a lot of chilli on mine. Yeah. But they were quite crispy. I quite liked that texture. Maybe I just got bad ones. Mine weren't very mm. crispy. And they put them around the rim of the glass in a margarita. Really? You had a cricket oh, margarita? In, in Mexico, yeah. Oh. Just booze, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. By any means possible. Yeah, exactly. Well, well <laughs> there's a shock there. You've had, you've, had, you've had an experience involving booze and food. So, yeah, you can read about that and do try cricket. We were going to bring them in, actually, and, and eat them. They ran away. Uh, we also have a big section examining the medieval period around the globe. Do tweet us at this podcast, at FBFM underscore podcast, with your comments and thoughts and please review us on iTunes. Next week, we'll be presiding over a US literature special in the TLS, Frost, Thoreau, Fitzgerald, Ashbury and more. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.